The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. Hi, everyone. Before I begin, here is a promo from the podcast Targeted with your host, Mo Blackwell. I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted True Crime Domestic Violence. We'll investigate one case of family violence each season using academic research to interpret the events so that we can become better advocates. Join us as we spotlight the death of four year old Militia Gibson from her stepfather's abuse delve into her family situation, break down the trial of her parents, and examine how her murder in 1976 led to changes in social service departments around the United States. Is there something we can learn about family violence through examining her murder? I think there is. She wasn't the only one in the house who was being abused. Domestic violence is a real problem everywhere, so I highly encourage everybody to subscribe and listen to her podcast, as it will raise more awareness on this topic. Now, let's start today's episode. Maldives, officially known as the Republic of Maldives, is a sovereign state located in the Indian Ocean in South Asia. It is made up of about 1,200 coral islands grouped in a double chain of 26 coral atolls. On the map, it is right below India. This territory is about 115 square miles, and it is the smallest Asian country, both in terms of land area and population. For a better idea, about 400 Maldives make up the state of New York. The population as a recent is about 450,000 which is very little for a country. The capital city is Malay, and is also referred to as the King's Island. The Maldives is the lowest country in the world, sea level-wise, only about 1.5 meters, or barely 5 feet, above sea level. The Maldives is very much threatened by the rising sea levels, so it is at risk of disappearing at some point. The major and probably only ethnic group in the Maldives are the Maldivians, also called the Maldive Islanders. 
They share the same culture and all speak the Maldivian language, which is also referred to as Deveji. This language is closely related to the language spoken in Sri Lanka. The national religion of the Maldives is Islam, which is also mandated by law. This nation is a founding member of the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, a member of the United Nations, and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. The Maldives is one of the only two countries in South Asia that rate high in the Human Development Index, with its economy mostly relying on fishing and, in more recent years, tourism. The history of the Maldives could be traced back thousands of years, but due to their way of life, a lot of artifacts and buildings did not make it to our time. Most things and buildings were probably built from wood, and being surrounded by ocean, most of these were unable to withstand nature and time. It is believed that the first settlers in the Maldives came from the Indian subcontinent. Beginning from around 3 BCE to the 12th century, the Maldives was a Buddhist nation and had made a major impact on this nation. Some of the very first Maldivian artifacts originated during this period, which includes writings, art, sculpture, and architecture. After the Buddhist period came the Islamic period, where the Buddhist king at the time converted to Islam in the 12th century. Later on, six Islamic dynasties would follow his reign. The oldest mosque in the Maldives was built in 1656, and compared to other nations nearby, the Maldives were a bit late to join the Islamic party. And this comes to no surprise to anyone, I think, but of course, there was colonialism. First came the Portuguese in 1558, but that was unsuccessful, as their attempt to impose Christianity caused everyone to revolt. Then came the Dutch around the mid-1600s, and they established their presence and dominance in the Maldives. But that's not all. The British then came along in the late 1700s and were like, okay, we'll take over from here. The Maldives became a British protectorate and was documented in an agreement between the British and the Sultan at the time, allowing the British to take over external relations but allowing the Maldives to retain their Islamic rule. A constitution was written in 1932, but it proved to be neither beneficial for the Sultan nor the British chief minister. The constitution was then ripped up in public, so that's that. The next part gets a little bit complicated because... A lot happens in just a few decades, so if you do get lost, I'm sorry. The British protectorate era came to an end in 1953, but their presence remained for some more decades, and the country became a republic for a while. The first president, Muhammad Amin Didi, worked on modernizing the country, including promoting women's rights and equality. But conservatives were not too happy about that, so they revolted. How dare women have rights? His government only lasted a few months, and during a riot, he was injured badly and fled the island, but he died soon after. The Sultanate was re-established, and the British also came back to re-establish their air force base. They set their base in the southernmost area, Gan Island, and paid the Maldives £750,000, boosting their economy at the same time. This base was eventually closed down in 1976. During a national referendum in 1967, 
the majority voted for the Maldives to become a republic, thus ending its 800 plus years of monarchy rule. Fun fact President Mahmoud Abdul Gayoom was the president from 1978 to 2008, 30 years as president. He did encounter many attempts to overthrow his government, but he made it out alive and well. Depending on who you ask, his presidency could be considered more of a dictatorship. The first democratically elected president was Mohammad Nasheed, and he went through a failed assassination. He was eventually forced out of office and is currently in exile. The next president that took over, Abdullah Yamin, is actually the half-brother of the previous president, the president who was in office 30 years. I guess they wanted to keep it in the family. Moving on to more relatable topics. The Maldives is located on a tropical monsoon climate area, meaning it has only dry or rainy season. Tourism in the Maldives officially began in the 1970s, and the first resort was the Kurumba Maldives, which opened in 1973. Now it is a booming hotspot for honeymooners, but ironically, the Maldives has the highest divorce rate in the world. It could be because it's an Islamic nation, so anything sex or relationship related is very, very taboo. So people tend to marry young and only to discover later on, eh, we're not meant for each other. Some others say it's because of women entering the workforce and a lack of childcare facilities. The Maldives also went through hard times during the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami. Most islands had been flooded and approximately 100 people died. Maldives looks beautiful in photos, but unfortunately, our descendants may never have the chance to visit this place because it is estimated that the sea level will rise so much by the year 2100 that this place will be uninhabitable. Everyone should go now and your grandkids and whatever will be like, whoa, this place existed back then, that's so cool. And my ancestors were there for vacation. That would make a great family story. Wow, I'm surprised I could compile so much background information for such a tiny nation. I mean, obviously size doesn't mean anything since the Maldives has quite a long history. Let's move on to the case today. I randomly wondered one day, hmm, I wonder if murder exists in paradise. And by paradise, of course, I mean the Maldives. Obviously, the answer is yes, because people can be assholes and really annoying, and those tend to come in all shapes and sizes, all races and colors. This week, I'll be telling you about the murder of someone who spoke his mind, someone who was kind, someone who was popular and loved. I admit, I started researching this topic thinking, eh, it's probably going to be a shorter episode. I mean... I kind of know why he was murdered and the country is so small, it can't be that complicated. Boy, was I wrong. So, Maldives, I apologize. This is the story of the untimely death of a famous blogger and humanitarian, Yamin Rashid. But before I tell you about his story, I have to start out with a few other stories. In the year 2012, a blogger and journalist by the name of Ismail Rashid, nicknamed Hilas, was found barely alive outside his apartment. 
This man wrote about religious tolerance and the importance of free speech. He was stabbed and his throat was slit. Miraculously, he lived, but no arrests were ever made for his attempted murder. In the same year, a man by the name of Afrashim Ali, a member of parliament, was also found stabbed right outside his apartment. This was a high-profile murder. This man was said to have moderate views when it came to Islamic teachings. He was also outspoken when it came to controversial topics, and although he was deeply religious, many people seemed to question his ideologies. He was pronounced dead at the hospital. Although there were suspects in his case, they never found who was behind his murder. In the year 2014, a journalist for the then minivan news and the now Maldives independent news, Ahmed Rewan, disappeared on his way home and was never to be seen again. He, like the others, wrote about religious tolerance and liberal topics, and he wanted reform in his country. Ahmed Rewan had adopted the pseudonym Moyamiha, which would translate to madman in English. When asked about his pseudonym, he explained, The one who speaks rationally will be considered a madman when living among an irrational people. It was later discovered that he had been abducted at knife point and forced into a car. Although police suspected the extremist group Kuda Henveru to be behind this attack and even had evidence, no one was ever charged or arrested. Police were less than forthcoming when it came to releasing information and investigating these crimes. This man still remains missing to this day. If you're going to tell me that all three of these incidents are just a mere coincidence, I'm going to shake my head and say, probably not. Well, our South Asia editor, Charles Haviland, joins me in the studio. Charles, he's set that in some context, but what's the political surround to this? Have this or previous governments done anything about threats to bloggers? Well, just to give background, this is a Sunni Muslim country where to be seen as secular or to even describe yourself as secular can be extremely dangerous these days, um, contrary to what tourists might see as... <laughs> the man alluded to. It's also a country where political repression has grown since the 2013 election. Um, the election itself was interfered with by the judicial system and by the armed forces before eventually coming to the conclusion that elected President Abdullah Yamin. In terms of the um, threats to bloggers and journalists, perhaps the most prominent recent example, um, other than um, Yamin Rashid, who's now been killed, was a, a journalist, Ahmed Rilwan, who disappeared um, nearly three years ago and has vanished without trace. The family of Ahmed Rilwan accused the authorities of letting the main suspect flee the country a few months later. Mr Yamin himself complained several times to the police that he was getting death threats. He even retweeted some of the death threats he was getting and it seems he was given no protection. There's been a call from a former president for an inquiry with international help into this. What are the prospects of that happening? 
Yeah, that call f- came from ex-president Mohammed Nasheed, the last president but one, uh, who was the first democratically elected country, uh, a, a president of the country. Um, he himself is now in exile, having left the country for medical reasons after getting a long prison sentence. And I think his call for international involvement will be ignored, probably, because um, he is always tarred with the brush of working hand in glove with the international community, with Western countries, uh, which are traditionally or were have been seen as allies of the Maldives, but with which the, the, the current government is now putting a bit, a bit more of a distance of itself. So I don't think that will gain very much currency within. However, it will be supported by others from outside. Amnesty International, within the past hour or so, has issued a statement, not necessarily calling for international help um, here, but strongly denouncing um, the killing and saying that this is a wake-up call to the authorities to take threats seriously. Charles, thank you. Charles Havland, our South Asia editor there. On April 23, 2017, 29-year-old Yamin Rashid was heading home after a long night at work in the city of Malay. His main job was working as a coder for the Maldives Stock Exchange, but he also had a passion for writing and voicing his concerns when it came to social issues and injustice in the system. He was an active Twitter user and even managed his own blog, called The Daily Panic. So that night, he headed home around or after midnight and was confronted by two men upon arriving at his apartment. They came at him with knives and Yamin Rashid was stabbed and slashed. He was found around 2.48 a.m. at the stairwell to his apartment and was immediately rushed to the Indira Gandhi Memorial Hospital. Although he had a weak pulse at the time, he didn't manage to pull through. He was pronounced dead at 3.48 a.m. He had suffered multiple stab wounds, mostly to his neck, face, and head. Yamin Rashid was born in the year 1988, and around the year 1990, his parents took young Yamin to live in Kerala, a southern state located in the country of India. This decision to move was made by his father, who, like most fathers, wanted the best for their children, as in Yamin and his two sisters. He believed that staying in the Maldives would not provide his children and his family with the best opportunities. As Yamin Rashid was growing up, he would constantly hear his father talk of the injustice and corruption happening in the Maldives. This was the same time the president of 30 years was reigning the country. Yamin was an avid reader and writer, constantly filled with his own ideas and opinions, but he was never described as intense or obnoxious. He was actually very soft-spoken and mild-mannered. After finishing high school, Yamin went on to study computer science in a university in Bangalore, which is a city about 700 kilometers north of where he grew up. Maybe his father's words had gotten to him somehow, or maybe it was because a new democratic elected president had taken office. Either way, Yamin had decided to return to his home country, probably having high hopes and expecting to build a better future for the Maldives. It was clear to everyone that Yamin, who grew up in a multicultural environment, who enjoyed thinking and writing and reading, was not a man who was just for himself. He documented his observations of the injustice and chaos. He practiced what he preached. 
He even walked everywhere, determined to lower his carbon footprint. He called out the hypocrites and the sanctimonious. He talked about diversity and tolerance. He did not believe God stood for hate. He believed that everyone should have a right to their own religion. And in his opinion, this was a problem with religion in the Maldives. Young people were being recruited in the name of religion, but instead of teaching them tolerance and love, they are being filled with teachings of hate and used against people of other religions and beliefs. He went as far as to call out the government for backing up this religion brainwash, using these religious people as their own army to push forward their own agenda. Many of these young Maldivians were even used as soldiers for Al-Qaeda and ISIS. In return, the government would receive funds. Imagine that. Can you kind of see how this might have angered the government and the religious groups? If all his allegations are true, I'm sure people involved would be angry and annoyed because this is negative publicity. But let's say this is all speculation. Would the same groups of people get tired of his accusations and want to just off him? Aside from being a very outspoken activist, he was also well known for his humanitarian work. Just a month before his murder, he had traveled to London with his friend, Mohammed Shirai. He had developed and pitched an app called Blood Drive at the 2017 Sandoz Healthcare Access Challenge. Sandoz is a pharmaceutical division for the pharmaceutical company Novartis. This competition was all about young people pitching their innovative ideas to link mobile and health, which in a way would grant easier access for people in need. Out of the 150 ideas pitched, there were only three winners, and one of them was that of Yamin and his friends. Pretty impressive, right? Blood donation isn't exactly common, and it's even more difficult to coordinate in the Maldives. So having an app do that for people is very convenient. His app is designed to incentivize blood donation, where people are encouraged and notified to donate blood. And by donating, they will receive points. Points will then serve as rewards that will give people discounts on their bills or Netflix subscriptions. I think it's a pretty cool idea. Obviously, there is a limit to how much a person can donate in a certain period of time. I mean, we all love Netflix, I know, but it's not really worth losing all your blood for. The journalist I mentioned earlier who was kidnapped in 2014 happened to be a very close friend of Yamin. When Rewan went missing slash kidnapped in 2014, Yamin was all over his friend's case. He experienced firsthand the government's lack of response, lack of transparency, and unwillingness to solve the case and bring those kidnappers to justice. In February, he blogged about his disappointment in his country on the Daily Panic. Quote, That is what Maldives has reduced to, a country without hope, a country drowning in religion, but where the merest hint of justice withers and dies in the face of unrelenting evil. Ultimately, a country with no soul. End quote. Ouch. Imagine describing a person like this. This, of course, is targeted at the government, the people running the country. It's not a surprise that his blog, mostly filled with satire and a wry sense of humor, was very popular among liberals. Of course, there will be people who love you, and there will be people who don't love you as much. 
Like many other liberal journalists, he received his fair share of death threats. At first, they were all anonymous, and he poked fun at them. They eventually became more and more serious, and were usually signed off with the words, Allahu Akbar, which means, God is great. Yamin did try to report some of his threats to the police, but each time he was dismissed. And to think the police literally have one job, which is to keep people safe from harm. The police were ignoring him, or were just not exactly competent. Did you know that if you looked up the crime statistics on the Maldives police database, there is no data for murder? You have everything ranging from arson to robbery, but no murder. And yet, we know for a fact that murder occurs. Their motto should really be something like, if you don't acknowledge it, it doesn't exist. Yamin's blog, The Daily Panic, is where he hopes to cover and comment upon the news and also provide a platform to capture and highlight the diversity of Maldivian opinion, especially content from other blogs and non-mainstream sources. He asks his readers to expect nothing but the unfiltered truth, the sickening facts, the gruesome details, and, because this is the Maldives, the painfully obvious on his blog, written right under the words The Daily Panic, it states, Maldives' only news website. I mean, clearly this is a witty guy. I have zero knowledge about the politics and circumstances in the Maldives, but I have to say, I appreciate this guy's humor. So at this point, you might be wondering, so what's going on with the investigation? I mean, a man was stabbed to death. There's got to be some kind of investigation, right? According to CCTV footage of the apartment on the night of the murder, multiple men were seen hanging around, coming and going from 2 a.m. to the time of the murder. To investigators, this was a well-organized murder plan. They had getaway bikes nearby ready to speed off as soon as the work was done. They had people standing outside surveilling the streets. The whole attack on Yamin only took four minutes. The good news is that the cameras were quite high definition, so it was possible to see the faces of those involved. A total of six men were charged for the murder initially, but now the number has grown to eight. There were court hearings as you would expect, and they began in September of 2017. But for some reason, they kept getting either postponed or cancelled, and every time this happened, there would be no explanation to the public. As for the hearings that did happen, they have been mostly held behind closed doors at the request of the state prosecutor. I mean, this is all very strange and suspicious. And not surprisingly, Yamin's friends and families and supporters were all very concerned. But the prosecutor general continued to tell the family, oh, don't worry. How can they not worry, though? The government and police department explained that they wanted to keep everything hush-hush from the media, and behind closed doors because they didn't want people to compromise the investigation. The case was moving at a snail's pace, at best. Information was rarely provided, there was no transparency, and then the court hearings are all held behind closed doors. Would you be okay with this? The most recent trial that was supposed to happen was in June of 2018, but guess what? It was cancelled 15 minutes before it was due to begin, citing, quote, administrative issues. 
administrative my ass. Yamin's family threatened to file a negligence charge against the police for dismissing his reported death threats, and the police responded with, Yeah, we will only continue with the legal proceedings if the evidence and hearings are kept secret. Excuse me? Even the United Nations couldn't sit back and pretend this was okay. The Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights even cited special procedures and asked the Maldives president to conduct a thorough investigation. Quote, In light of the extreme seriousness of the attack, we urge a thorough and independent public inquiry to take place, bringing to bear all of the resources of law enforcement and focusing on his murder and the disappearance of Ahmed Rewan. According to sources, police and government continue to ignore the protests of Yamin's families and friends. Yamin's father reportedly submitted 800 letters from different individuals asking for a clean and clear and independent investigation on his son's murder, but he has yet to receive any response. Several of Yamin's friends and family even stated that they have received threats or have been fired from their jobs for asking for a thorough investigation. At this rate, I highly doubt this case will ever go anywhere, and those that are actually responsible for his murder might never be caught, or they might just be hiding in plain sight. To his supporters, this was not just a man murdered, but a voice of reason, a voice who was willing to expose and call it as it is, and a voice who advocated for freedom and acceptance. I believe this feels like a step back for them. Instead of getting more freedom and more tolerance, they're losing the ability to speak their minds or have any opinions. To be honest, that sounds like a pretty scary future to me. So there you have it. The kidnappings, murder attempts, and murders of people who had different opinions in the Maldives. It sort of makes me sad that the Maldives is always seen as a beach resort a beach paradise for us outsiders, a place where we go for vacation, when in reality, like many countries, they're fighting a silent battle, trying to get what many of us already have, freedom of speech, religion, and faith. You might be happy to know that Yamin Rashid was honored at the Journalism Museum, cleverly called a museum, in Washington, D.C. earlier this year. Before I end this episode, I would just like to clarify that I was not by any means putting down the religion of Islam or the people who follow this religion or way of life. While there are many extremists out there, most are peaceful and rational, and as we people of the true crime genre should know, weird, intense, and mean people lurk in every single corner, regardless of race, gender, religion, or nationality. I think that's the whole point of this podcast as well. I'm here to represent the morbid side of Asia, but just telling it like it is. Asian representation at its best. Alright, so I skipped the shout-out section in my last full episode, so here are my shout-outs for this week. For my new reviewers, from the US, Jen the Mole, Warlini, Ella's fam representative, and the host of the podcast, Some Kind of Brown, Natalie. Thank you guys very much. From Canada, hey, it's Hannah, G-E-R, 267. 
I am not sure if that's how I'm supposed to say it or if that's how it's supposed to read, but I think you know who you are. And, of course, the lovely Tanya Espana. From Australia, Brat 2020. And from Sweden, Gunnar Nilsson. Thank you, everyone, for your kind reviews. I read every single one of them, and I live off them for the entire week because it makes me happy. And for my newest Patreon member, thank you very much, Vanessa Squire. Your pledge really means a lot to me. My podcast is going to be one year old next month. I am really, really excited, and I never expected myself to make it this far. There have been times where I really wanted to just drop it and go on living my life, but I always knew I would come back and regret the decision. So thank you everyone for keeping me going, whether it's listening, subscribing, telling a friend, reviewing, or Patreon pledging. Every little bit means everything to me. Thank you! Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. Please help me by rating, reviewing, this podcast. If you're on social media, please look for me under the handle Asian Madness Pod. If you have any comments or suggestions, do not hesitate to write me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. I truly appreciate each and every one of you for being here. I am your host, Jessica. Till next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.